How's it looking? When's it? When's it supposed to be? Well, my wife just uh, went to bed and she came down and she's uh, she said, yeah, it probably won't be tonight, but wow. I don't know. I'm wait, probably tonight or probably not. Well, probably won't be tonight. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. But, but then again, you know, we we could get you know in the middle of the podcast and be like, right. uh, guys, yeah. uh, gotta go. <laughs> You, you, well, it would be I mean, the it would be the first effectively wild child. I would you know what I would even though it's a girl I would name her uh, uh, Ben Sam Carlton. I mean you would wait wait you'd wait till the end of the episode though right? Oh yeah, I mean it okay. would just be you know in right. the middle of you guys talking about whatever it would just be push push. Yeah okay. right right yeah. okay. Well it might it might be the first time I ever got the podcast to be as short as I would actually like it to be. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, and welcome to episode 271 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined as always by Sam Miller, and for the first time by Russell Carlton, whom we have mentioned on the show many times and have somehow never, never had on, although it feels like we have because he's the person who corrects us uh, via email or comment or instant message when we say something stupid, which is fairly often. Um, and now I'll just get to do it live and in person. Right, yeah, so this will save time for everyone. So welcome. He also, welcome yeah, he, I would say he also uh, is the one person who when we raise uh, difficult to research questions actually does <laughs> the difficult research. Yes. And he is also the person, if I don't have a topic and it's only a few minutes until recording, <laughs> I simply go and look at the last thing he wrote and talk about it because it's always worth talking about. Mm -hmm. Oh, Sam, you're such a sweetheart. <laughs> and uh, Russell is on the verge of acquiring his third daughter. Uh, it could happen at, at, at any moment. We are hoping that it won't happen during this podcast. But he has, he has agreed not to take his wife uh, to the hospital if she should require that until the podcast is over. Uh, so she will have to wait if, if that were to occur. Um, Sweetie, did you hear that? You gotta wait. <laughs> um, okay, so we're just doing a, a regular show, except Russell is here. Um, so we have topics. What what topics do you guys have? Well, my topic uh, is uh, 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 the team that we think uh, now three weeks out wants a mulligan on what they did at the trade deadline. Mm -hmm. Okay, my topic is uh, hard to describe. <laughs> Try Try, try it for us. Uh, I guess it's uh, assumptions that we think will be overturned. Huh. That, or okay. something. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, very, okay. very meta, but okay. Okay. Uh, and my topic is about teams disciplining their own players. Mm. Uh, and it's going to give Russell an opportunity to, to talk about things that I think he, he knows more about than we do. Um, so who wants to go first? Not me. <laughs> uh, okay. I, well, all right. Mine might be kind of long. We'll see. Um, so mine, uh, Russell, I don't know if you've been on the internet lately, uh, but there have been a lot of one-sentence paragraph written, one-sentence paragraphs written over the last couple days, not just hot takes, but really like blistering takes um, mm -hmm. about Yasiel Puig and who's that? <laughs> oh, we should have done some prep uh, before this episode. Um, so, so Yasiel Puig uh, is an excellent player. Has been very valuable to the Dodgers, but seems to um, seems to do these things that people aren't happy about. Uh, whether it's his attitude or his 
is occasional lack of fundamentals. And lately, it seems like there's been a lot of focus on this because, I don't know, I guess now the, the Dodgers playoff spot is almost assured. So now people are turning their attention to October. And there's this there's this idea that, uh, that Yasiel Puig is somehow this very combustible force in October. Like he's he's somehow going to cost the Dodgers lots and lots of wins uh, through, you know, overthrowing the cutoff man or or yelling at an umpire or not running something out. Uh, Bill Plaschke wrote, Puig's antics are the sort that will cost a team in a close game in October. For every playoff game that Puig wins with his bold arm or crazy legs, he could cost them two. Uh, which I, I, that's a lot. I, I suppose he could, uh, but he could also, you know, win them too because he's good at baseball. Um, no, 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 Ben. If he wins them too, he loses them four. Do you not understand? <laughs> this is dangerous, Ben. The more he wins, the worse it is. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, okay. Don't even. Don't even. <laughs> so don't even get me started on three. So basically, it's better if he's just benched uh, because he can't. He can't do double the harm. Well. That- if he loses, if he just lo- if he starts by losing them one, mm-hmm. then I believe that he might. <laughs> Never mind. Go. Yeah. Uh, so so I can I can understand on one hand why you would want to correct these these flaws in a player. There's there's no reason why you wouldn't want him to hit the cutoff man or you know not anger an umpire. Those are those are legitimate things to want. Um, but over the last couple of days, there's been this this sort of discussion of what the Dodgers should do here. And it's, it's been, it, it's kind of made me think of, uh, Russell, your background in child psychology, because the way that people have, have kind of framed this is as if, uh, Puig has to be disciplined or taught a lesson. Uh, he has to be given a timeout of some sort and, so he was he was kind of unofficially benched uh, the other night, and and then he was put into the game as a defensive replacement and hit a home run because home run, because yeah. he's good at baseball. Um, and so this was seen as kind of like a wishy washy discipline, like like an ineffectual parent who who you know gives their kid a timeout, but then the kid cries and they say okay it's over, and then the discipline doesn't count or something. So. Uh, we don't have to talk about Puig specifically because we don't know the ins and outs of, of Puig psychology, but I wonder kind of what you think the best approach is for a team in this situation. You've, you've written a lot about how players develop and how, you know, you're not fully mature and your, your prefrontal cortex is not fully formed until you're 25 and Puig is 22. So is there anything that you can do? Uh, for a player who's having these these kind of problems, or if there is, what what's the best approach to go about it without alienating him further? Boy, I, the the thing about that is that you know the presumably the Dodgers have tried stuff behind the scenes, and I mean there was the I was listening to there was reports of uh, of Don Mattingly just you know um, having a little sit down with him, and mm-hmm. um, I bet you that they've. They seem to have tried everything, every which way that they can do it. Nothing quite seems to work. And, you know, to, to be very honest with you, it's it's tempting to think that, oh, you know, we should just find, uh, you know, we should put him in a longer timeout or we should send him to, you know, send him to bed without a, uh, without dinner or something like that. And 
and I mean, it just kind of being the dad of a four-year-old myself, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, uh, um, you can, you can do the discipline all, all you want. And, and, um, sometimes it just takes a long time to extinguish the behaviors that you're trying to get to. And especially with a 22 year old kid who's, um, you know, I, I got to imagine. And with if people talk about, you know, he came from Cuba, it's a whole new world and just a lot of the, the stuff that's kind of going on in his head. And I wonder if he's just kind of had a, um, a chance in his own head to kind of get himself settled to, you know, this is where I am and this is what I'm doing. And then on top of, you know, him being 22 and him being, you know, you can imagine just think of what you guys were doing when you were 22. Um, and uh, some of the, you know, you don't have to cop to it, but some of the crazy stuff you might have gotten up to. Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff going on. It's it's so tempting to think, hey, you know, we just need to um, we just need to set him down or have somebody talk to him. It's just not that simple. Behavior change takes a long time. And, you know, we're really talking about a guy who's been up in the major leagues for what, two, three months, something like that. When did he come up? Uh, was it beginning of June? Yeah, that sounds say? right. So, so, you know, he's been up for three months and you know, that that's what 90 days. And that's, um, in the, you know, in the, in the behavioral literature, um, it generally takes about, you know, six months when somebody's willing to work on something. So, mm. uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it seems to me that, I mean, first off, uh, you used Plashke uh, nicely to, mm-hmm. to introduce this, but, I mean, frankly, nobody takes Plashke seriously, um, and, you know, what? I don't think he takes himself all that seriously, or maybe he takes himself too seriously, but, I mean, nobody thinks that, that Puig is really, in like, a uh, you know, that the every game he wins, he's going to lose them too. Uh, you know, nobody really thinks that's true. I mean, clearly, right. I think everybody acknowledges that in the short term, Puig makes the Dodgers better. If he runs into a few outs or if he, um, you know, is kind of brash and loud. Um, <laughs> can I can I quote another hot take? Uh, Scott Miller, CBS Sports. Uh, this is the lead. This is the lead. You can see it coming from here to the autumn leaves. Crowd screaming. National television cameras blazing. Game four or five or six of the playoffs, and Yasiel Puig runs into an out, overthrows a cutoff man, commits some egregious mistake that cost the Dodgers the game, maybe even cost them the playoffs. And then in this scenario, the Dodgers go home for the winter, and Puig jets off to join a South Beach Congo line for the winter. All right. Well, I'm wow. gonna I'm gonna adjust my <laughs> objection to your, to your framing. Okay. I mean, first off, just to to I mean, clearly like. It's not as though uh, getting thrown out on the bases is an intangible. Like, that's actually a very tangible thing that we can measure as part of his performance. And he's been reckless on the base pads, for sure. And yet we have a pretty good sense of what his his um, his total value is as a player. So, uh, you know, they can handle that. But, I mean, the point I was going to make is just that the short-term fears are, are kind of nonsense. They're just for, I would say they're just for hot takes. The long-term development seems to be significant, right? I mean, they've got a guy who's going to be worth somewhere between probably three wins and, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 wins in the next six years. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a real there's a real incentive for them to get that up to 30 or 40. And if you worry that he's getting into bad habits, that he's going to perform worse if he's, um, you know, hated or uh, reckless or, I mean, I'm, I'm really not thinking about the 
overthrowing the cutoff man. I'm thinking more along the lines of just, you know, what we see fame do to young players from time to time. And um, I, that's a significant thing. So the question is, how do you, you know, how do you do that in a long-term way? And I don't really know the answer to that, but my, my sense has always been that, like, once a person gets to a certain age, like, you know, once they turn, I don't know, 13 or 14, until they're about 25, uh, the, the, the key is just to keep them from destroying themselves. The key is just to keep them from, you know, like, you know, crashing into, uh, you know, a, a, a tree or something, right? Like, you just, you want to make sure that they, uh, you know, kind of are safe and, and all that. But they'll eventually come out of it on their own and end up being adults. Most people end up being the adults they were always going to be. And so for the, from the daughter's perspective, it seems like, you know, you just kind of ride this out and you don't overreact to it. And if you don't make too big a deal out of it, then, you know, he'll emerge from this in three or four years, like a, like a normal ball player. And probably nobody will hold it all that much against him. I would think, I don't know. You know, I'm wondering though, if we're kind of conflating two different things here. And one is, you know, how many 22 year olds out there have, have, uh, have poor fundamental skills? You know, how many, and there's a lot of those guys out there and, you know, Puig's a hell of an athlete and he's now he's, uh, um, he's up at the major league level and, and it's, it's all raw tools and he's, he needs some refinement and that's, that's fine. So, you know, that, that kind of thing can be taught, but we're also kind of conflating the fact that he's, and I'll be generous and say a little tone deaf to the way in which his behavior kind of comes off in the media. And, you know, I think that people are kind of conflating, let's say that he was, you know, just a 22-year-old toolsy guy that needed to learn some stuff, but he was kind of quiet and demure. Do you think we'd be having this conversation, you know? Oh, no. Yeah, not at all. The, mm-hmm. To me, the the overthrowing the cutoff man is a non-issue. It's just, you know, what I mean, Bryce Harper was pretty reckless, too. I mean, yeah. it's, I think, one of the things about the way of how quickly both of those guys made it to the majors is they did not, they didn't get to play against triple and double-A competition and sort of learn you know, slowly how good these guys are. They went from basically playing against high schoolers to playing mm-hmm. against big leaguers. It's a different speed, and uh, they're playing at a different speed. That that seems totally reasonable and not a moral failing in the least. But it seems that all of the Puig, you know, backlash that's happened, there was the Puig mania, there was, you know, this guy turned around the Dodgers, and then then there became, now it's the, the Puig backlash, and I mean, what, he's like the second most hated guy next to A-Rod right now. <laughs> Yeah, I should mention that we, I don't know how many outs he's running into, but we have him as a... as a Like po- a plus eight or something, yeah. <laughs> we have him as a positive value base runner also. So even yeah. even even the thing that he's apparently reckless and bad at, he's he's good at. Um, so I want to, I mean, is there, a, is there a danger with the kind of one-size-fits-all discipline model of the major leagues where when someone does one of these things, the... The standard response is to bench him, either pull him out of the game or not start him, and in a way, just just sort of publicly, publicly embarrass him in a way, or at least it 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 could be taken that way. And I wonder, I mean, certain types of discipline must be more effective than others with certain people, right? And players oh, sure. are are people, and so is there a is there a danger that you know if you bench a guy or pull him out of the game then you're actually doing more damage you're creating resentment whereas if you left him in the game but you sat him down and had a private talk that would be more effective for a, a particular player 
Well, I get the feeling that they probably, like I said, they probably tried all of yes, them. Yes, and, yeah. and that's. But you know, there is. You said the words "one size fits all" and 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 one size fits all anything is a bad idea when you're trying to change someone's behavior. You kind of got to get inside and figure out what the what makes the guy tick. And you know, you, publicly embarrassing him, you know, might be just the most horrible thing you can do, and he might resent you for that. And you know, maybe he would respond better to something private. Um, or, you know, maybe he's just, you know, we, they, we just haven't, uh, figured out what might reach him. You know, maybe you need to do what I, I, I do with my four-year-old and I give him, I give her, uh, two choices and both of them are acceptable to me. And I, uh, I let her pick which one she wants and that way she feels in control. And, um, you know, now you see all, you can either hit the cutoff man or you can hit the other cutoff man. I don't know what the, that would be, but. Um, but you could uh, either one's fine with me. I'm okay with that. But uh, that might be you might you might just need to kind of dip back and uh, uh, pull something out of uh, out of the parenting handbook, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how uh, Puig doesn't seem to be hated at all by fans. This seems to really be a, a media and kind of a baseball men kind mm-hmm. of controversy. He's a rebel uh, without a cause. He really is. He's a he's a renegade. He's a he's an outlaw, and he's. It seems like it's to some degree burnished his credentials as as like a as a phenomenon. Yeah, sure. Bill Hanstock just tweeted uh, something that I'm going to clean up just a little bit, but uh, he says, <laughs> "I hope he goes to the World Series and pulls this thing out while Joe Buck is interviewing him." <laughs> <laughs> And scene. <laughs> Are we done with that topic then? Yeah. Okay. Sure. <laughs> That's a good way to close. All right. <laughs> Russell's. Let's do Russell's. Okay. Okay. So my topic was the um, the team that, that you think um, kind of most wants a mulligan on on what they did at the trade deadline, whether something they did or they did not do. And um, since I thought of it, I'll uh, I'll throw mine out there. And I I know that. Um, I was looking back at the, the Chase Utley situation, which I know you guys have, had talked about before, because um, I listen every day, and I'm such a big fan. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I just but, you know. Um, but anyway, the the, uh, the Chase Utley thing, and I, I'm sitting there and thinking, boy, it seems like everybody in baseball screwed this up, because the Phillies couldn't have gotten something for the guy. I mean, and you know, I mean, whether it was Kansas city would make sense. Orioles would make sense. The, you know, I could make a case for like the Rays or somebody like that. You just move Ben over somewhere else. One of the other 15 positions he plays. And you could, you could see something along those lines. Um, I, I have to wonder, um, you know, the, Chase could have gone and, and had a nice little vacation somewhere in a, a two-month vacation in the city, gone to the playoffs, and uh, and then come back and sign the same extension he did in in uh, a couple of weeks ago, or last week, something like that. Mm-hmm. And so there's that. The Phillies seem to be dead set on signing him when they could have gotten, again, something for him, which is better than nothing. And then they went and they signed him in, in August – kind of taking away the leverage they might have had to play around with, oh, you know, we might trade you at the August uh, waiver trade deadline. And while some of the team kind of, you know, you think of, you put, uh, um, you put Chase Utley on some of those teams that I mentioned, and they're right in the thick of it. 
and that would be, and he's what the, I think I looked up, he's like 25th uh, best player in the league by Vorpus, despite the, uh, Vorpus, but the fact that he missed, uh, what, a month and a half. Um, you know, why weren't there teams that were dangling a little bit more in front of the Phillies and saying, hey, you know, we understand you might want to get him back, and that's cool with us, but, you know, we'll, uh, we'll rent, and then the Phillies could have played a little bidding war there. Mm-hmm. We sort of talked about uh, whether, I don't think it was in regards to Utley, maybe maybe it was, I don't think it was, but we talked about whether... Soriano and Utley, maybe. Yeah, why teams don't trade the guys that they mm-hmm. want to re-sign more, whether, how much that matters in their hopes of re-signing, and the timing of the Utley thing, so, I mean, we don't know what the conversations are, right. are like, but it sort of feels like the timing of the signing it might have they might have benefited from not trading it like it might have been the case that you know they 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 made the first move and they basically demonstrated uh their loyalty to him if he didn't want to be traded um and you know i mean it, it was like a week later that they signed him or you know it's I, I don't know it it's also possible that they were that they knew they were closing in on him although i don't remember i think we i think i heard the, the tiktok a little bit um, but I mean, yeah, clearly Utley had big value to to somebody, um, and the Phillies weren't going anywhere. I, I think teams really uh, are hesitant to give up possession of a player. Like you know that old saying, "Possession is whatever tenths of the law." Nine tenths of the law, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it it really does feel like like oh yeah, you you have this great plan in mind, like you're going to trade him, but you know you still have a relationship with him, you can have conversations with him before you trade him, and let him know that you. Really, but as soon as he goes somewhere else, it's like. You know those conversations kind of fade away a little bit, and uh, you know you, it's sort of best not to lend things to people because they <laughs> people are terrible. They just take your stuff or they scratch it. See, the thing the thing that I I thought was like you know the teams that made much most sense Kansas City, Oakland, Tampa Bay. You know Chase Utley's going to go and after oh, right, yeah. got, you know, how many years with in, Oakland. right how many years in Philadelphia and he's going to go out to Oakland and be like, dude, dude, <laughs> dude. <laughs> You know, I got to stay here, and you know, I mean, uh, <laughs> so there's, you know, there's, there's that aspect of it, and I don't know, maybe it's, I, I have to wonder at what price. Uh, there's loyalty, and there's, you know, I know he's iconic, and you know, he's been with the team for ten years, and he's, he's got all that going, but um, I, I have to wonder at what price loyalty comes at, and and, and especially if it just would be kind of a, a rental slash here we'll lend you Chase Utley for. Uh, for a couple of months. Do you, uh, I guess, if you believe that the Phillies got a super good deal on Utley, it changes the conversation a little right. bit. If you, and I don't, I, I, I think that I initially thought that they had gotten a super good deal on him, uh, and then the, the vesting options were so complicated that I actually couldn't tell. Like, I couldn't figure it out. They're so complicated <laughs> that, like, there are years where an injury seems to actually help the Phillies because then they get like a really good option on them for the next year, and then there are some years where an injury hurts them, and it's hard to tell. So I don't know if, if the I don't know if they made all that profit on Utley in, mm-hmm. in re-signing him, but I don't know. I kind of sense they did. I, I sort of feel like you know yeah they could have gotten more. They had this wonderful asset that like you say a lot of teams could have paid for, but you know they you you gotta you gotta you gotta win the pots that 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 you're ahead in and. They had, you know, they ended up making, I would say, a little bit of profit on the situation, and probably don't regret where they are. I don't know. You're probably right. You're probably right. I don't. Oh, know. I don't yes. Know. I just, well, I that don't... is my job to tell you guys you're wrong. So since I'm live <laughs> on the air, you're wrong. Yeah. 
Um, I guess my pick would probably be the Pirates, just for kind of not doing anything. Um, I wanted them. But they've, yeah, but they've they've actually solidified their. I mean, the, the, nothing has changed about the Pirates, right? I mean, you you have the same gripe that you had at the time, but it's not like they've fallen out of the division race or or anything. I mean, they, well, like they've I, actually got. I mean, they're they're nine and ten since the deadline. Uh, they're a game over 500 since the beginning of July, and we, I mean, it was it was kind of evident that they weren't quite as good as they, they were over the first three months of the season. Still a, a good team, but it seemed like they were kind of over, playing over their heads a little bit, and we're going to come back to the pack, and, and that they would be battling the Cardinals and the Reds for the rest of the year, and now they have, uh, let's see, they, they lost tonight. Um, I think this is updated their... They're a game ahead of the Cardinals. Uh, they're two and a half games ahead of Cincinnati. Um, so, you know, I, this just seems like it would have been a, a good time for them to... They have a lot of prospects. They could have done something without completely killing their system. And it just seems especially important for them, uh, given the last two decades of failure, to get into the playoffs and actually win the division instead of having to play a wild card game and possibly being out immediately after that. Um, I don't know what exactly they should have done. They, they clearly were, were trying to do things right up until the end. Uh, they were trying to trade for Stanton and, and other outfielders. And, and you can point to guys who've been traded since like Rios and De Jesus and those guys, I mean, Realistically, they probably aren't huge upgrades over the players they're playing currently. I mean, Tabata um, has really been just about as good as those guys. Um, but, you know, they're playing Garrett Jones and, and Andrew Lambeau, and it it just seems like there's there's something that could have been done there. They had a lot of incentive to do something. Um, so I, that's what I would have liked to see. And I don't exactly have an answer, but I kind of do. The, so the Rangers were a buyer. They got Garza. And then as the deadline approached, they had fallen so far behind the A's uh, that they were actually looking at becoming maybe a seller and Garza was available again. Um, like they were willing to trade Garza. And they, they, they didn't end up doing that, but you know they were at least reportedly willing to do it. And I, you know, Adam Morris from Lone Starball seemed to be willing to just sell off everything that wasn't nailed down at that point. Like he, he was almost like, it, it seemed like giving up on the season. And, um, and so I'm, 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 since they didn't do it, they don't actually fit what you're asking for Russell. But, uh, if they had that kind of mentality at the last day when they were five games, six games out of the division, uh, they've gone 17 and four since then. And they're now up a game and a half. Um, and so clearly I guess things change rapidly and it would have been, uh, it would have been regrettable, I would say, if they had traded Garza um, or really anything else, but they kind of lucked out or whatever and didn't. Yeah, actually, one of the things I noticed, you talked about things changing quickly. Do you remember at the deadline, everybody was freaking out because Yadier Molina went on the uh, went on the DL right before then, and mm-hmm. St. Louis was casting about for you know a catcher, anybody who would, who could catch. And, uh, and, and now you kind of look back at that and you're like, boy, that was... <laughs> That was a little over overreaction there, you know. I mean, he was out for a couple of weeks, and yeah, I mean, the guy's, you know, MVP caliber guy, but they survived, you know. 
What did the Royals do? Remind me what the Royals did. I forget what the Royals did. Maxwell. Justin Maxwell. Maxwell. Oh, yeah, yeah. Justin Jamie, Maxwell. Jamie Carroll. Jamie Carroll. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I defended it. I defended the Royals not selling at the time uh, because I thought that it was – that the way that they are, it was worth hanging in for that sliver of a chance. And they've kind of maintained that sliver of a chance. It really hasn't gone away. They're a long shot. But they're like, uh, you know, 1 in 30, 1 in 40, something like that and right now. And Bonifacio I, I still kind of – I still kind of feel like the Royals should keep chasing that one in 30 or one in 40 because they're the Royals and, you know, it's going to be all the sweeter if they pull off a miracle. <laughs> all right. Um, so my topic is I, I was having a conversation with somebody today and the idea, uh, the idea of uh, working a pitcher, you know, of like trying to get a pitcher's pitch count uh, high came up. We were talking about sort of things that used to be uh, like obviously accepted by stat heads and that now aren't and that uh, so like one was you know catchers the catcher's role in the pitcher uh, in the pitcher's success was one of those things right where five years ago or whatever it was sort of dismissed as settled statistically settled and now it's obviously nothing of the sort um, and so the pitch count thing came up where uh, you know, 10 years ago, it was just considered so obvious that you should get a pitcher's pitch count up and batters who could do it were considered um, very valuable for that reason. And now you look at it and every bullpen is so incredible and you sort of think, well, actually, if you can kind of get that pitcher to go through the lineup the third time, you might actually be a lot better off. And so anyway, that's uh, just a way of getting to my question, which is uh, seems to be something that Russell probably has an answer for. Uh, it, I, I just want to know in 10 years time, uh, what kind of accepted part of stat head orthodoxy we will uh, have completely turned our back on or uh, at least moved beyond? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> pass. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what, well, what other yeah. ones we've... I mean, you think of I mean, you think of things that have kind of gone by the wayside over the past ten years, and there was you know been the the there's been dips that you know the kind of the strong form dips of there's no yep. difference between pitchers and their ability to um, to induce ground or to induce outs on balls and play, and you know the the orthodoxy went from yeah yes to yeah but you know there's there's more to it and. Um, gee, you know, I, I think that, um, I actually, the thing I think that we're going to do is that as, as data becomes more available and whether that's field FX or if somebody else, uh, you know, kickstarts a, a crowdfunded, uh, defensive, uh, thing that you guys were talking about yesterday. Um, I, I wonder if we're going to, we're going to look back in 10 years and realize that we got defense all wrong. Um, and some of the, you know, some of the, the measurements that we have now on um, kind of what the values that we were placing on things and, and guys that we were really overrating when, you know, it was more ballpark or it was more, um, you know, shifting or if it was positioning or something like that. And I think that we'll have a lot better understanding of defense in the next 10 years or so. Um, and I... I, I wonder, I don't know how how we get much more specific than that. Maybe it's just, you know, we we think a guy is this amazing defender now, 
Um, but what we're really seeing is that, well, you know, he's got a quick reaction time, but he's slow afoot or, you know, the other way around. And we'll just have a more nuanced understanding of that. That would be kind of a second reversal on defense, I feel like, almost. I mean, uh, the whole money ball thing about how defense wasn't so important that, and that we just wanted a bunch of sluggers, um, and then that was kind of abandoned. I don't know whether that was... I don't know whether defense was underrated or whether it was just deemed to be... Uh, I don't know whether that just wasn't the area where teams thought there was a competitive advantage at that time or what, but uh, we we kind of went through a, a period where suddenly all the, the Sabre teams and Sabre people were talking up defense and maybe we're we're kind of still in that or the tail end of that a little bit. Um, so I guess that would be kind of a, a second sea change with the, the sabermetric standpoint on defense. Hmm. I don't know. I'm trying, I'm trying to think of some other, some other dubious things that we think I am. I'm, I'm but you don't of, you don't know they're dubious, Ben. Right, That's I know. The point is they don't it, seem dubious to you. Yeah, we don't know that we don't know them. Yeah. So you know, there's there's that kind of uh, yeah that, that philosophical quandary there. I'm I'm kind of skeptical about the shift, I guess, or at least I'd like to I'd like to see more more evidence before I make up my mind about the shift, and maybe maybe that's a sign that it doesn't qualify because we're not sure about it. But I feel like I feel like some people are. Are pretty sure about it that it seems to be something that smart teams are doing and it makes sense and and maybe that's the case um but i just wonder i feel like we we don't have complete complete data on who's doing it and when and how much it's helping and whether hitters are changing their approach to counteract it at all like suddenly adam dunn is an opposite field hitter now uh, after he decided that he was sick of hitting into the shift, and over the last couple months he's going the other way and hitting 300 something, um, so I wonder whether it will prove to be a lasting thing, or whether whether teams will develop shift countermeasures uh, and sort of neutralize it, and will go back to traditional alignments more. Yeah. The, the thing that, I mean, the, that you could end up with, though, is that, you know, if we had, like, field fielder positioning data and, you know, we could construct some sort of measure on, you know, how, how well teams are positioned and then you could start getting into, well, you know, who's doing the positioning? Is that the manager? Do we credit that to the catcher? Do we credit that to the analyst who's feeding data down into um, the, the dugout? And, you know, how we talk a lot about how managers um, – how much they can affect the game and you know maybe that's our our entree into into some of that uh some of that and how how a good manager can or you know whoever's in charge of fielding but um how how well they can how much they can affect the game Mm -hmm. all right is that enough stuff yeah yeah okay thanks for answering my question guys you're welcome thanks for the show yeah. <laughs> um, Sam, you, Sam, you are the show. <laughs> oh, also, you are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and me, I'm wrong too. Uh, all right, so thank you for joining us. I'm sorry it took us so long to have you on. It's very silly that it took 271 episodes. 
Um, we wish you and your wife and your future daughter well. Uh, and you should all subscribe to Baseball Prospectus to read read Russell's work and his column, Baseball Therapy, which comes out every week and sometimes multiple times per week and is, is always an interesting read. Um, so thank you, Russell. Oh, thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, so we will be back with one more show tomorrow.